You know, this weekend, as we're offering services online at Horizon, we wanted to help give some spiritual guidance, support, and some promises from God as we face a very unprecedented time of fear and panic in our culture. And what does it look like for Christians to come at this kind of anxiety or unknown with a sense of peace and a sense of confidence and even a sense of courage? And we want to offer to you not only some guidance and direction, but as this process kind of unfolds, what are some promises you can really hold on to from God during this time? One of them I've been sharing with some friends comes out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And maybe it's something you could hold on during this time. Look what it says here in 2 Timothy. It says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear. God, that fear does not come from God. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now look what he's saying here. Whenever you see fear and confusion, that's not coming from God. God instead has given you the power to overcome fearful circumstances. God wants to give us the power to love other people, whether it's ourselves, our family, or our friends who are feeling that kind of anxiety, and a sound mind. Now, what does that mean, a sound mind? A sound mind is a self-disciplined mind. Someone who knows how to handle their thoughts, control their thoughts, and not let their thoughts or their circumstances control them. So I want to share with you a little bit how we do that. How do we have a self-controlled or a sound mind? Now, if you think of a video projector for a moment, you think there's a switch and then there's a projector. And for many people, this is how life goes. Somebody flips the switch and all of a sudden what projects is panic or this week, you know, flip the switch, the governor makes a decision, the state makes a decision, the school district makes a decision, and all of a sudden what comes out of my life is everybody's buying toilet paper, right? Who who knew that one announcement from the governor could result in the reaction of everyone buying all the uh, the toilet paper at Walmart? And I think this is the kind of pattern that happens. We have action and then reaction. And what we do, what we think, what we say, all comes of our reaction, but it's all controlled by actions that are outside of our control. People and circumstances. And all of a sudden I say, I don't want to feel feel fearful. I don't want to feel overwhelmed or hopeless or feel so much confusion. But right now there's so many people flipping the switch on and off. How do I get control? And here's where the Bible offers just really, really practical thinking. Because it says we are not just people who react to people and circumstances. In fact, if you think of this diagram, for example, what happens is when something occurs, a circumstance, somebody says something, some kind of news comes your way, there's actually another step to that. And the step is that when people and circumstances trigger you, all of a sudden there's a reel that plays. What do you think about that person? What do you think about that circumstance? And that real flips on the light of your feelings, and that produces what you feel, and the action, the real, and the feel produces your reaction. Now, if you think about that for a moment, isn't it true that two people can have the exact same circumstance occur in their life, and they can both respond in totally different ways? Now, how is that possible? How can two people have the exact same circumstance and yet respond in a different way? Because they think differently about the circumstance. When you get bad news, for example, one person says, wow, I can't handle it if any more bad news comes my way. And then, because they can't control circumstances, things do get worse. And all of a sudden, because they told themselves, I can't handle it if things get worse, now they feel incredibly hopeless, incredibly overwhelmed, incredibly panicked. And what comes out of them It's not just buying extra rolls of toilet paper, but oh my goodness, there's all kinds of anxiety and and erratic behavior. 
as Christians, we can transform our minds. And even if we don't like the circumstance, we can say, God, I don't prefer these circumstances. I don't like what so-and-so said. I don't like the situation I'm in. But God, you are with me. And even in these circumstances, you are with me, and you're going to work all things together for good during this time. Now all of a sudden, you know what feelings come on? Not fear and worry and anxiety, but hope, confidence. I may be disappointed, but I'm not devastated. And I know that God's going to work in these circumstances. What comes out of me is a type of peace that transcends my circumstances. So here's the truth. We don't react to people and to circumstances. Instead, we react to what we think about people and circumstances. Now think about that for a moment. We don't react to what we see in people and circumstances. We react to what we think about people and circumstances. Now why is that so helpful? Because over here, all the power is in things outside your control. Over here, you can actually control what you think about. In fact, it says in the book of Romans, be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by determining, taking every thought captive to know what you're thinking about the circumstances that are coming your way. Now, let me give you an example of kind of what this looks like in real time. I read a book several years ago by Ben Sherwood, and the book was actually called The Survivor's Club. It was about people all through history who overcame and survived several things. It was bear attacks and, you know, a knife accidentally stabbed through a, through a chest, and it was financial disaster. One of the stories I remember was in 1989, the story was told of Jerry Schmiel. Jerry had an exhausting day and kind of plopped down on this seat in an airline and was just ready to relax. As he was sitting there ready to relax, he had no idea that this trip from Chicago to Denver was going to turn tragic. They got up to about 37,000 feet. As the plane made a turn, all of a sudden he heard a kaboom, and it was louder than anything he'd ever heard before. As he looked around to the eyes of everyone around him, you know what he saw? Panic. There were women crying. There were babies screaming. People looking back and forth, wondering, are we going to die? It was in that moment, he immediately prayed and he said, God, thank you that my wife isn't here. I'm so thankful she's not experiencing the dread of whatever this is. Be with me. Now the voice of the captain came over and it was a reassuring voice. The captain said, we got bad news. And the bad news is that we have lost one of our engines. And we had a fan about the size of a a grown man break, scattered through our engine, destroyed one of the engines, and, and damaged our tailpipe. But the good news is we can fly on two engines, so be prepared. It's going to be a rough ride, but the flight attendants are going to get you prepared. And again, Jerry could just see the panic, the fear. It was growing all around. But as it was growing, he also realized that this was another time to pray. And he just almost instinctively began to pray. He said, God, help the flight attendants. Help them to teach us what we need to know in order to land safe. But he went on and he prayed, God, I'm ready to die. I don't want to die. I don't hope to die. But I'm ready to die. And I know that death is not the end. It's just the beginning. And so, Father, if you want to take me now, I surrender to that. But please, help me to overcome if I can. With that, again, the uh, captain came over the the, the headphones or the the speaker system and said, all right, this is going to be a rough landing. Be prepared. We're heading in. And as they were heading in, he's like, all right, it's going to be close. 
And again, almost out of instinct, because his parents had taught him how to think about things and how to have a self-disciplined mind, Jerry began to make an assessment of the plane. Where was he? Where are the exits? Kind of a mental map of the entire thing. And sure enough, the last thing he heard was, brace, brace, brace! And they came to a landing. When he awoke, he was upside down. As he awoke, he's like, alive or dead? Alive. He realized he had to take his mental map he had taken and flip it upside down so he knew exactly how to get out. And he made his way to the exit. And because he told himself his plan was find the exit, then help other passengers, Jerry was able to not only be safe himself, but help almost everybody get out of the plane that day. He got to be part of that. Now, here's what's amazing. Whenever you hear flight attendants maybe talk about, you know, here's what to do in case of an emergency landing, I don't listen at all, right? Because it's like, you know what? The plane goes down, probably nobody survives. What good is this? But did you know they did a study between 1983 and 2000? And they found that 95%, of people who are in a plane crash survive. 95%? And what you do in the first 90 seconds when everyone else is panicking will determine your success. And some of the things that Jerry did intuitively are the things that lead to success. Do you know where your seat is compared to the exit? Do you know what direction to go to get out in the first 90 seconds? I think what's amazing about Jerry is he's in a circumstance where he could not control the circumstances at all. And they were tragic, they were difficult, they were out of his control. And yet, do you see what he did? When everyone else was panicking, he did several things. One, he had thanksgiving. God, thank you. There's some good to see here. Thank you that my wife's not in this circumstance. He also brought some truth. God, I know I'm ready. I know what the afterlight's about. I know that life is outside my control. He began to tell himself that, right? What else did he do? In the middle of that circumstance, he said, God, help other people, the people trying to guide and direct during this time. I want you to help them. He took his eyes off himself, his thoughts off himself onto other people. And then he made a mental map, a sound mind, a self-disciplined mind. What do I need to do if we land? I need to be prepared. I know where the exit is. I'm going to be ready to help other people. It's just a great example of what a sound mind looks like in the midst of circumstances outside of your and my control. Now, the Bible gives some of the same things. In fact, this last year has been a time that I have wrestled with fear probably in ways I never had before. It's been interesting during this last year because my wife had some ongoing health problems with her back. My son with autism has had these ongoing behavioral issues. And I have felt very, very out of control. And I found myself dealing with that fear in a lot of unhealthy ways. Hypervigilance, trying to control things that I can't control, like people and circumstances. I found myself using food many times to deal with the stress. You know, just eat more food, you know, maybe make me feel better, gaining lots of weight, but not necessarily, you know, handling it in a very healthy way. But the last year, as I've been a combination of counseling and going to the Bible for spiritual wisdom on fear in particular... God has given me so much freedom in recognizing how to have a sound mind, how to control the reels that control the feelings I have. And I don't know what you've been through this last year. Maybe it's just the coronavirus, and the the thoughts coming off the news and off the radio is causing so much inner panic. Can you identify those reels? Maybe this year you went through a divorce, or this is one of those years that you were widowed for the first time, and you're like, man, I am always going to be alone. I don't like being alone. And that reel right there, I'm always going to be alone, is producing sadness in you. Maybe the coronavirus, you've said to yourself, you know, as long as, as, long as the, the number of cases doesn't go up, then I'll be fine. 
but they haven't even started testing yet. The minute the tests come out, just the nature of having testing kits, of course the number is going to go up because we can test more. Don't have a reel that says, unless the number stays low, I'm going to be at peace. Say, God is going to work in the middle of the circumstances. God, you've not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What if that was the reel we had during this time? Today I want to share with you a psalm from the Bible. The book of Psalms like little journal entries turned into songs later that are written by people like King David. And David is going through a very, very difficult time with circumstances totally out of his control. And he's going through a terrain that is very, very challenging near the Dead Sea. It's desert, desert, desert everywhere. He has no resources. He's under incredible fear and panic because the king, King Saul, is trying to hunt and kill him. He's got about 400 men and their families with them. So he's got the sense of responsibility to provide for and to protect 400 men, women, and children while being hunted by the king of the land. Now, back in 2012, I spent about five to seven days hiking through this part of the country. And let me show you what a picture of this looks like. This is the terrain in Israel. Imagine walking through this barren wasteland at 120 degree temperatures. The lack of resources the deep sense of responsibility, and the fear and anxiety over what are we going to do next. How is God going to come through? There's no even good place to hide. Yet in the middle of this, David has such a powerful encounter. It becomes a psalm or a a journal entry that literally has become famous for thousands of years in giving people hope and encouragement on what to do when you face fear and anxiety. The opening words is really the key concept for us. When you go through times of fear and anxiety, what does it look like for you and I to pant like a deer? Look what he says. He says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now look at those words, pants, pants thirst. What does it look like for you and I to pant after, to long after God? And often it's the times we pant after God, long after God, think we even need God. It's when our resources of self-sufficiency run out. That's when we begin to long for God. Now, have you ever seen anyone pant? Maybe it's the end of the Flying Pig Marathon. You're like, (gasps) people are after running all 26 miles. You see them panting or longing for water, water. Maybe you've taken your dog for a, for a walk and you get your dog back and after a long day walk, you just see him <laughs> panting and he goes up to the, the water bowl and just lapping that up. Or maybe you've had a father and, and, or mother in hospice and they haven't been able to eat because they've been eating through a, an IV and they had the hunger pains and the loss of hunger and their mouth is so dry and they just long for, for moisture. You know that feeling? What David is saying is when I went through times of fear and anxiety, it brought out this sense of needing to pant for, long for, I gotta have God in my life. I gotta know what he has to say here. I gotta understand what he has to say about my circumstances and my situation. What God wants from you and I is he wants us to pant after, to thirst after, to long for him in a way that often comfortable circumstances don't bring out that longing the way difficult, fearful, challenging circumstances do. God says, I want you to pant after me. Here's what's amazing. When you're hiking through the Dead Sea, all this dry territory, you suddenly come across a place called En Gedi. 
And it is shocking. It's like somebody planted a jungle right in the middle of the desert. There's a freshwater spring that produces waterfalls. And it's like you stepped into a whole other world. I got a chance to visit this place after a seven-day hike through the desert back in 2012. Let me show you some pictures of what it looked like. Just waterfalls everywhere. Here's just one of the many waterfalls. In fact, after this long hike, we walked into one of the waterfalls, and here's a picture of me standing under the waterfall. I just laid there and let the water refresh me and wash over me and cool me. And I was panting for refreshment, panting for coolness. And it was after a very challenging time in my life. It had been a difficult year, and I remember just sitting under that waterfall saying, God, fill me. Fill me with peace. Fill me with joy. Take away fear and worry and anxiety. Be my God right here and right now. Maybe that's what you need to do during this time. Maybe it's during this time when you just feel overwhelmed by the news and overwhelmed by all the different noises and and conflicting data. Just say, God, I need you to wash over me your truth that you're still in charge. You're still in control. You work together all things, all things for good. And you have not given me a spirit of fear. In fact, when we were there in En you look all around, and because it's one of the few freshwater springs in the area, all kinds of animals come to this area. In fact, here's a picture of a deer. Now, it looks like kind of a deer and kind of like a mountain goat. It's uh, kind of a mixture of the two. It's called an ibex. These are all over the place at En and so David is probably here at En seeing these deer and these ibex all over the place when he pens these words. Because he li- literally sees real deer coming to the real water and lapping it up and saying, oh, that's how I feel toward God during this time. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. So embedded in here are four practices that David has that I think you and I could apply immediately this week, today, right now in our life. Four practices for developing a a sound mind, a I can control how I think about people and circumstances kind of mind. So here are the four things. Don't rehearse it. Don't nurse it. Don't curse it. And let God reverse it. He does all four of these things in the simple little psalm, the simple little song that he gives us. Let's look at the first one. The first one is, what are you rehearsing? Boy, if you've got constant fear on the radio, constant fear on the television, and you're just constantly hearing bombarded with these thoughts, and you rehearse it over and over again, my goodness, if you're always listening to the real of these kind of negative messages, it's no wonder you feel panicked. It's no wonder this reaction is coming out of you. Because you're rehearsing over and over and over again this kind of negativity, this kind of fear and panic. This kind of, it's all out of control. So look what it says in the passage. What does David choose not to rehearse? He says, my tears have been my food day and night. So notice, he's going through a very, he's he's tearing up, he's, he's panicked over the fear, and it says, my tears have been my food. It's what I've been eating on, it's what I've been chewing on day and night. All I rehearse day and night is my tears. Day and night, my tears, the panic the fear, and the worry. While they continually, see the rehearsing? Continually, round and round and round, they say to me, who says to me? My tears say things to me. Day and night, what they're saying is, where is your God? Do you see this reel? This reel is, over and over, 
as I look at my circumstances, as I face these challenges, what I'm saying to myself, what I'm hearing from myself is, God isn't here, God isn't in control, God has left the building. You can imagine if day and night you're thinking about your tears, and day and night you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh wow, God isn't here. Where is God in this? Where is God in this? No wonder you're feeling fearful and panicked if you're rehearsing this over and over and over again. What are you rehearsing, and how is it impacting you? One of my favorite stories, I told this about a year ago, but it's one of my favorites about thinking about what you rehearse and how what's happening in you affects how you see the world. See, grandfather had fallen asleep in, in a lazy boy recliner, and grandpa had fallen asleep, and he was snoring along on a Sunday afternoon. And the grandkids decided to play a joke on him. So they went into the kitchen, and they got some Limburger cheese. And as they grabbed this Limburger cheese, they said, I know, let's take some of the Limburger cheese, and let's spread it on Grandpa's mustache. And so they snuck back into the living room. Sure enough, Grandpa was still sleeping there in, the, uh, in a lazy boy, and they take the Limburger cheese while he's sleeping, and they rub it into his mustache, and then <laughs> they kind of sneak off. Well, Grandpa wakes up a little bit later, you know. <laughs> Ah, something stinks in here. And they're laughing to themselves, but turns to his wife. Honey, what's going on in the living room? Something stinks. She says, oh, don't worry about it. Come on in the kitchen. So he comes into the kitchen. Well, maybe it was just something in the living room. He walks in the kitchen. Oh, the kitchen stinks. But Grandma had just made some chocolate chip cookies. She said, well, come over to the, to smell some of the chocolate chip cookies. So he opens up the chocolate chip cookies and, oh, no, they stink too. He says, well, why don't you just go outside? So Grandpa walks outside, opens the doors. As he walks outside, he looks outside, and he's like, oh, the whole world stinks, right? The whole world stinks. Why? There was something going on with him that he didn't know about that was actually impacting his ability to view the entire world. In the same way, when you're rehearsing the same tears, the same message, God is with me, God is not with me, where is God in this, panic, 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 everything's out of control, everything seems to stink, everything seems to be out of control, everything seems fearful. You see, thoughts are a lot like snowballs. Remember making a snowball, a snowman as a kid? You start with a little one, and you roll it, and you roll it, and you roll it, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I remember as a kid, I'd make what I thought was a giant snowball, you know, the size of a softball, and I'd throw it at my dad during a snowball fight when I was a kid, and my dad would run up that snowball coming at my dad would take one hand and catch that thing. Wouldn't splatter, wouldn't hurt him, just literally caught it. And some of the fearful, panic, overwhelming thoughts we have, we've been rolling them around our head, rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. You know what our Heavenly Father wants? He wants us to throw it at Him. Because what's overwhelming to us, he just catches with his one hand. The Bible says, cast your anxiety on him. Cast your anxious thoughts. In all things, prayer and supplication. What if instead of rehearsing, I'm a victim, this shouldn't happen to me. What if instead of rehearsing, I need to know what's going to happen, I've got to, I can't handle more of this. What if we began to instead rehearse the promises of God? He is with me. What was intended for evil will be used for good. God, who can I bless? Who can I encourage? How can you use me during these circumstances? 
wouldn't that change your perspective of how you feel and how you react if you weren't rehearsing the same negative messages over and over again? I think it would for all of us. So number one, don't rehearse it. Number two, don't nurse it. A lot of times things get worse because we nurse them. Think about nursing a baby. You kind of get up close to it and you kind of nurse it. A lot of us nurse a grudge. We, we, we nurse a sense of a feeling like there's a black cloud over my head all the time. Yeah, look, I always have to put up with this. Let me tell you what happened last year or last month. Oh my goodness, it's always this. I always get the short end of the stick. We nurse it. And by nursing it, we even more give, give weight to it. We give power to it. And look what happens here in David's life. David says, when I remember these things, and what are the these things he remembers? The these things he's remembering are what he just mentioned. The tears telling me God's not with me. So when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. It's time to pray. It's time to get this stuff out. But look what he mentions. There's some habits he's withdrawn from. I used to go with the multitude. I used to talk to people. I used to get encouragement from people. I used to hang out with people. But because I'm fearful or anxious or overwhelmed, I'm withdrawing from other people. So now I've got the negative emotions and nobody to tell me to encourage me or to help me. I went with them to the house of God. I used to go to the church. And again, that's one of the reasons why at Horizon we want to make services and the Bible studies available to you during this time. Because when you withdraw from God's word, when you withdraw from those promises from God, you start like only hearing messages of panic and pain and not hearing the messages of promise. And so he's saying, I began to nurse these things because one, I stopped hanging out with other people who could encourage me. And two... I stopped hanging out or going to church. And the amazing thing with technology is that we can be safe, keep our distance so we don't spread germs, while at the same time through online services and through communication and other ways, we can still encourage one another, we can affirm one another, we can share promises with one another because we don't want to nurse the pain and panic. We want to nurse instead God's hope, God's love, and God's power. Then he goes on, he says, Now, with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that I kept a pilgrim feast. So I used to have joy, I used to have praise, and I used to keep these feasts. But I'm not doing that anymore because I've withdrawn from the sources of truth and instead I've been nursing the forces of hopelessness. So what does it look like for you and I to nurse joy, nurse hope, and nurse courage during this time. You know, the church has actually faced very serious health crises in history. Rodney Stark is a sociologist. He's also a historian. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, he said one of the things that led to Christianity making a massive impact in the Roman Empire was because of what happened in 250 A.D., so if you think, hey, the flu's bad, the coronavirus is, is worse than that, but it's nothing compared to smallpox. In 250 AD, smallpox was spreading through the Roman Empire, so much so that at its peak, 5,000 Romans were dying a day because of smallpox. Everyone was panicked, everyone was overwhelmed, and anyone with means scattered. What was amazing is that the Christian doctors and Christian nurses who did have resources to scatter, they instead stayed and cared for, served, helped and loved people who were Christians believed the way they did and people who were pagan Romans who did not believe the way they did 
And the Romans had never seen anything like this. This view of family, that you would treat people you weren't related to, that weren't in the same caste system as you, that you would love them and serve them and care for them, was something they'd never seen. And ultimately, around 250 AD, the explosion of Christianity began to occur because of how the Christians reacted to this health crisis. The people around them saw they weren't fearful and panicked the same way everyone else was. They had a peace. Two, they took the opportunity to serve and to care and to heal people and create a sense of family that the Romans had never seen before. And they brought several things to bear. Number one, the Christians saw this time not as a time that God has abandoned us, but to say this is a time of schooling and testing. God wants to use this time in our life to test our faith and to give us an opportunity to show other people how we react during difficulty so that they will turn to God. So they saw this in a very different way. Three, they saw death in a very different way. They said, you know what, I don't want to die to live as Christ. I've got a lot of important things to do. But if I did face death, I know Jesus Christ came to earth, defeated death on my behalf. So the greatest thing you could scare me with, which would be death, I'm not scared of death. Because I know it's been defeated. It's not the final chapter. So this unique perspective of persevering through trials, knowing God was in charge, seeing the circumstances as a trial and schooling and testing, and their belief in the afterlife and that Jesus had come and defeated death allowed them to bring a peace. The reaction to these circumstances of smallpox was peace and service and love and care. And it transformed history. Because they didn't nurse the hopelessness They nurse the hope and the courage and the promises of God. So don't rehearse it. Don't nurse it. Third, don't curse it. I think this is hard, especially when you go through difficult times. It's easy to say, I don't want that. Curse that. I wish that wasn't part of my life. If God really loved me, he'd get this out of my life. Look what happens here in David's psalm. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Now notice he's not talking to God here. He's talking to his own soul. And why are you disquieted within me? Again, he's talking to himself here. Why are you disquieted within me? And he's talking to himself. Hope in God, self. Hope in God, soul. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So notice what he's doing. He's talking to himself and telling himself to hope in God. So let's go back to the diagram. His self was saying, oh my goodness, panic, 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 panic. He recognized my soul is downcast. I recognize my soul right now is is feeling very down and very low. So I talk truth to myself and I say, self, hope in God. Put your confidence in God. And he's talking to himself about changing out his real. The Hebrews call these soul talk. When you talk truth to yourself. And you tell yourself to put on the truth of God when you're in these kind of circumstances. So see what David noticed? Instead of cursing his situation, cursing his feelings, cursing his thoughts, he instead talked truth to his thoughts. Don't curse it. Instead, speak to it. Speak truth into the circumstances. What if you didn't curse the circumstances you're in right now? In fact, it goes on. It's pretty amazing what what he says next because he shows how God will use the very circumstance that he wanted to curse to be the very source of power in his life. Look what happens. He says, oh my God. So now he's talking to God. My soul is cast down within me. So God, I need help over here with my soul. 
Therefore, when I feel disquieted, when I feel like I'm cast down, therefore, it's at that moment I'm going to remember some things. And look what he's going to remember. The first thing is I'm going to remember you. Then he mentions several things. I'm going to remember you near Jordan, near the heights of Hermon, and the hill Mizar. I want to come back to those. But look here, he says, I'm going to remember you. We don't just need some abstract truth to solve pain and anguish. We need God in our midst, in our circumstances, and in our challenges. You know what you need more than the stock market going back up? You know what you need more than them, the, the governor to make an announcement, the school to make an announcement, or the president to make an announcement? What you and I need right now more than anything is you. God, I want to remember you are with me. You are in control. You love me. You have a plan. You want to use me in these circumstances. And God, instead of cursing it, I'm going to instead use it. This situation, I want to curse. Say, God, how can you grow me? How can you help me right here and right now? In fact, he mentions a couple of locations here. He mentions the Jordan River. It was a low place where the Israelites had first come into the, the promised land. So he's looking back to his past. God, you were with us in the past. Then he mentions a place called Mount Hermon. Now, this was a cursed place if you were an Israelite. In fact, the book of Enoch references a little more detail of something the book of Genesis tells us. The book of Genesis tells us about a time that the earth kind of got shattered with, with evil and darkness with Adam and Eve. Then there's another one where the sons of man came to earth. In the book of Enoch, it's not in the Bible, but it's referenced by the book of Jude and the book of 1 Peter. So the, the, the biblical writers certainly know of the book. It tells us what happened in Genesis, but specifically says that the sons of man, these kind of evil forces, come and rest right on Mount Hermon. And so I think the reason David's referencing this is he's saying, hey, it's one of the tallest places in the land, but it's a place known for darkness, for being cursed. What's amazing is when Jesus comes to earth, you know, thousands of years later from David, he decides to reveal himself as fully God, what's called the transfiguration to his disciples, specifically three of them, uh, Peter, James, and John. And of all the places in the world he could have taken them, of all the places in the countryside in Israel he could have taken them. He walked them out to Mount Hermon. Next to, even today, you can go to a place that's called the, the Gates of Hell or the Plutonium. It's a place that they would worship the god Hades or the god Pluto, the Romans and Greeks. Jesus brings them there, says the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Then he walks them out to Mount Hermon, a cursed place, to reveal himself as fully God. Now, whether you believe that, you know, Jesus really showed up, whether or not this cursed story really is true, whether or not Jesus really revealed himself as God, the principle here is powerful. God wants to take the cursed moment and use what you consider a cursed moment to be the moment he shows up the best. Don't curse it. We're going to ask God to reverse it. To God to take those moments you most wish he would push away and say, God, use that to draw me close. I had the opportunity recently to hear my friend Beth Guckenberger share a story about dealing with cancer in her life. As she was sharing this story, one of the things that struck me was how she dealt with cancer. She said, you know, before we went into the circumstances, I decided that I was going to allow these circumstances, I make a decision, God, I want you to use these circumstances to make me and to make our family more like Jesus. As she was sharing this story, she said, things got pretty grim as I was going through the therapy. I have a tendency to be pretty upbeat. 
but just being in so much pain and being drained so often, I found myself snapping at my spouse or snapping at my kids. I didn't realize that under pain, things would come out of me I didn't even know were in me. And God began to use that circumstance to shape me, to show me things I need to deal with inside of myself. But more than that, as I came out on the other side, I would be at a tennis match or a soccer game, and there'd be some you know, mother or father who got really angry or mad or really crabby. And, and in years past, I'd be really judgmental, like, well, they really ought to get their attitude together. But now I began to think through my experience of what God did in my pain to say, I wonder if he or she's just in pain right now, physical pain, spiritual pain, or emotional pain. Instead of being judgmental, I found myself being more empathetic. God doesn't waste our pain. She didn't curse it. Instead, she let God reverse it to use the thing she most wanted to curse to bring glory to him. That's our fourth principle. Don't rehearse it, don't nurse it, don't curse it, and let God reverse it. Look what happens here in the passage. Let God reverse it. Now, how does God reverse it here? In a pretty incredible way. Again, imagine you're David. You're seeing waterfalls all around you. This is a small one. There's waterfalls all over the place in En Gedi. And it's in the middle of these waterfalls, you say, man, God, he can bring fresh water in the middle of a dry desert. And here are the words he pens. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. And he can hear the waterfalls gushing around him. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. There's still hope. God's going to bring loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me. And see, he's, he's coming against those tears talking day and night. God is with me, his command. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock. Notice God, my rock. And notice what he says, though. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He's still honest. This isn't like wishful thinking, happy, happy, happy. He says, God, I got some questions. Why am I mourning? Why am I being oppressed? Why are we going through this? Why have you forgotten me? God is not asking us to be dishonest. He wants us to share our struggles and our doubts and our fears and our anxiety with him. But notice he's simultaneously sharing his struggles and fears while saying, but you are my rock. You are my God. You're the thing, you are the person I'm holding on to. And this is what Christianity offers that no other religion does. See, religion will tell you, well, you know, trust in God, but you can't talk this way to God. God, why have you forgotten me? Why am I mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Religion doesn't let you do that. No, God's going to be angry at you. Atheism doesn't offer that either. You don't say, he's my God. You say, hey, he's given up on me and I'm not going to talk to you anymore. The gospel or the main message of the Bible is that I don't always understand what God is doing and why he's doing what he's doing. But I tell you what I do know is that God loves me enough that he sent his son to die on a cross. And a perfect man who did nothing wrong, a perfect God who did nothing wrong, died for me because we live in a broken, broken world. And when I look at his love for me in that situation, I say, he is my God. He is my rock. He's where I'm putting my anchor in. And I know he loves me. And I love him enough that we're committed to each other enough we can have tough conversations. And God wants to hear my heart. He wants me to pound on his chest occasionally and say these things. So you can simultaneously, because of the grace of God, because of what Jesus did, be honest with him. He can be my rock and I can have some questions for him. 
That's what David finds here. God, I need you to reverse this thing. I don't like these situations. I don't like these circumstances. God, be my rock and help me understand what to do with these emotions that I'm going through. And that's our key takeaway. Those four principles really were about one main thing. He had this ability, David did, to know how to talk truth to himself, to talk truth to his soul. He just continually kept his soul from going off and talked truth to his soul from God. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies, look at what his enemies keep saying, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where's your God? There's the all day long truths. Panic, 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 fear, fear, fear. Where is God? And I had to talk to my soul. Why are you downcast on my soul? Come on, soul. Why are you disquieted within me? Here's what I need you to do, soul. Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Now look at that phrase. Hope in God. Think about that. So that I will yet. I'm not doing it yet. So I will yet praise him. So he had to think about and tell his soul something. So that he would praise him. Let's go back to our diagram. You're not going to be able to control. The number of people who have the coronavirus. Do all the things. We live literally in the real. We live in the most free, the most, we have the most gifted doctors in history with the CDC telling us what to do. So we have the most gifted doctors in history giving us advice and we're going to follow that advice, right? And that's going to alleviate some things we can control and not spreading a disease. But you know, you can't ultimately control where everybody's going to go, what everything's going to happen. So do the things and, 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 and say, I'm going to follow the reels of the smart people who give me good advice. But what would it look like to do what David did as well? I'm going to hope in God's soul. When you feel downcast, when you feel disquieted, when you lose hope, say, self, my happiness is not determined by what the news says, by what the radio says, what people do or people don't do. Self, hope in God. And when you tell your soul to hope in God, you start feeling hope and courage and strength, and then you start reacting in a different way. And we as followers of Jesus are those who are kicking the tires on God are saying, but I want that. I want to be able to go through circumstances and be able to navigate it with a sound mind. Because remember, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound or self-disciplined mind. Pant like a deer after God during this time. Don't rehearse it, the fear and panic. Don't nurse it. I'm a victim. Nothing I can do. Don't curse it. God, how do you want to use me in this circumstance? And God, how are you going to reverse it? How are you going to use what seems evil and intended for evil as an opportunity for people to find you and find hope and find love in a new way? In fact, let me pray over you. Whether you're watching this on Saturday or the weekend or sometime during the week, we all need someone to pray for us. And maybe you've never had someone pray for you personally. Can I just do that for you? You can close your eyes if you help. If I'm praying for your family or if I'm praying for you personally. But let me pray some hope in you, just like David did. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you, God, that you are still in control, that you are still sovereign. God, I thank you that you love each person here. You care for them. God, I ask that you would take all the disquietness and the worry and the anxiety they're feeling, Father, and you would draw near to them. And you would give them promise. God, the promise that you are here. That they don't need to worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries by itself. 
But in the same way you care for the birds that fall from a tree, you care for them. God, that you love each one of us. And let me give you some promises from Joshua just to hang on to as we continue praying. God says, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. Be strong and very courageous, for I will not leave you or forsake you. Meditate, ruminate, rehearse on my promises day and night. Do not turn to the left or to the right, for I am with you. And every place your foot trods or steps upon, I will give to you. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Father, we thank you for our church community. We ask, Father, that we would be people of peace. God, we're not going to presume that this is going to be over with soon. We don't know. But we are going to presume that you're going to use this time in our lives, in our community, in our church, that we would pant after you, that we would cast off self-reliance, we would cast off the belief that we can control the universe and we're masters of the universe. Instead, we would draw near to you, Father, as families, as a church family. Continue to give us and our elders guidance as we learn how we can discern your wisdom here and help those who are personally wrestling with all the different ramifications and ripple effect of the challenges before us. We pray for those affected by the virus, Father, that they will be healed. We pray for those doctors and nurses who are on the front lines, God, that you will keep them safe and protected and keep them healing and serving and and speaking to people who are hurting and quickly getting them uh, the symptoms caught before it gets too serious, Father. And protect the elderly, those who are most at risk, Father. We ask that you would keep them safe and protect the innocent during this time as well. And all these things, Father, we give you credit for you are so good at taking things that were intended for evil and using them for good. And Father, we hold on to the promise that you can work all things, all things together for good for those who love you. Thanks so much.